0: You're listening to The New Paris. If you've been listening from the beginning of this show, you know that the goal was always to continue the conversation where The New Paris, my first book, left off. It's a way to discuss all of the evolutions the city and its people are undergoing and have expert guides that have been important voices to come on and document this change. In keeping with that ambition, the show will now highlight the many female voices that are important to the changing city as they pertain to the themes presented in my second book, The New Parisienne. Does that mean men won't return to the show? Of course not. But at least until the end of the year, women will take center stage. I'm excited to begin these conversations with a woman I met three years ago this month. I was in Washington, D.C., giving a talk with Pineapple, D.C. around the New Paris. Pineapple is a culinary-centric collective for women – women who work in food and beverage, who are passionate about it, or have hopes of one day working in the industry. That's where I met Ashley Donahue, a cocktails and spirits lover who was then considering a shift from her work in the State Department and into the world of spirits. Two Worlds Whiskey, a bourbon brand she launched in April, is winning awards and a host of new whiskey fans. Ashley, thanks for joining. Hi, Lindsay. How are you doing? Where are you? I'm
1: in my apartment in Paris on the 17th, where it's nice and toasty. Are you in Normandy?
0: No, no, no. I'm in Paris as well, where I'm, you know, looking with great fear at the weather report, because we're supposed to get a heat wave.
1: Yes, I will fortunately be skipping town before that happens. So,
0: Well, good, good. What happens with your cat?
1: I have a cat sitter. I have a very lovely, dedicated cat sitter who's been helping us for close to three years now. So she'll be coming and checking in on our our cap
0: So this, these are very important considerations when we live in a city that has more and more heat waves uh, than ever before. I thought we were quite lucky up until this point, but uh, it looks like it's just coming later than last year. Yeah, lucky us. Yes. Lucky us. So let, let me dive right in. Um, you have come a long way since the moment I met you now three years ago. And, and I can't believe that it's already been three years. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what you were doing in DC before you made this big move and this big career change?
1: Sure. So before I met you, before I moved to Paris, I actually worked for the U.S. Department of State for almost eight years uh, in a variety of different positions. I worked on uh, international organizations issues and G7. And my the job that I had when we met, I was actually working as an advisor to the U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for war crimes issues. So a good deal different than whiskey.
0: I mean... Just, just a tad, Um, and with that job, you were traveling around the world. I'm assuming
1: I did. Yeah, I got. I was quite lucky, and and I got to to do quite a lot of traveling, which was uh, a fun thing.
0: So, what though? How does how does how do spirits and cocktails fit in? Because when we met, you came to the event at Pineapple DC, um, and and that's for women who are either passionate about you know food and beverage or work in the industry. So, what was your connection? Or, or your sort of attraction to that group at the time?
1: Well, I've always had a, a baseline love of spirits, which comes from growing up in Kentucky, which is the land of bourbon. And so, I mean, for years I had been, you know, obsessing about bourbon, and every time I'd go home to Kentucky, be visiting different distilleries. And at the same time, living in Washington, the cocktail scene was really developing. And so I had actually... Uh, you know, it's good to have hobbies <laughs> outside of the office. And one of the things that I, I did to try to keep myself sane in some some busy years was I actually started a club um, for women who were sort of cocktail enjoyers to actually go around to different breweries, distilleries, and cocktail bars that were women owned in DC as a way to both sort of form a community of women interested in the same thing and also to support the women on the other side of the still uh, and Barr, who are doing amazing things in Washington.
0: Okay, so there is a there is a a, a fair point here w- that you make, which is that you're allowed to have a hobby. I sort of imagine everybody who works for the government being completely, you know, overwhelmed by by their role. Um,
1: completely overwhelmed is still very much accurate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so you got yourself out though, um, and when we met, just to give the listeners a little bit of background, you were. Deciding, you're in the process of thinking about whether you were going to come to Paris and pursue a master's degree, even though you already, I mean, you already have done graduate work, if I'm correct.
1: Yes, I had two
0: master's degrees at that point. Right. So you're, you know, which which
1: many would say is more than enough.
0: (laughs) Of course. But, you know, this is. This is what we, this is what happens when we, we have interests in many different areas and we want to figure out how to make them part of our careers. But so you were considering coming to Paris to pursue a master's that would get you into or sort of get you on the path to be able to create your own brand. I mean, it sounded like even at the time you knew that the end goal was not that you would work for somebody else permanently, but that you would create your own project. So what you know, what was the school that you went to and why was that the right place for you?
1: Yeah, so I mean you you hit the nail on the head that when we met I was at a major crossroads and I actually struggled with the decision of whether to take the giant leap uh, for a really long time. I mean I I had the I found the program which was uh it's a school here a business school in Paris called INSEC, and they have a very specialized master's MBA for uh, luxury brand management for food, wine, and spirits. And I had found that some months back and thought, oh my goodness, wouldn't this be sort of the perfect vehicle to make my pivot? I can go back to school, learn some of the basics. And the more important part of it for me was that it came with six months of an internship. And I had already even identified uh, a great company to work for, which is La Maison de Whisky, which is a major sort of premium whiskey uh, shop and distributor here in France um but at that moment i was just really struggling with the decision because i had already spent quite a lot of time building my career at the state department i really loved what i was doing but at the same time like i was saying i had this sort of baseline passion that over the years that i worked in washington just kept growing and growing and every time i would go home to kentucky I would see the bourbon boom that was happening and all the exciting things that were happening in the industry and I would say why don't I work in this sphere but then I'd you know go back to my normal life but at some point the the balance shifted and it became something that I could no longer ignore and I yeah finally took the decision to to start with that MBA program and and pivot and start over
0: and was part of the decision you know one of the the factors that was driving you into the Uh, into the camp of making the big shift part of uh, what was happening to the political space in the U S yeah,
1: it would, it would be unfair to, to ignore that part of it too. I, I, after the election um, I, you know, the, that was sort of one of the things that definitely it switched the balance for me. And so, especially in the office that I was working in, as I said, I was working for the ambassador at large for war crimes issues, which works on uh, pursuit for justice for victims of genocide and atrocities and war crimes, which is generally an apolitical uh, sort of line of work. And the the writing was starting to be on the wall that things were going to be even more different than we had anticipated for, you know, just a general changing of the guard in the administration. And so I really started looking more seriously at uh, following a different, Career path, which had been tempting me all along, it was just sort of the the last straw that
0: um, that changed the balance for me. So, before we get too far into you know what you created, um, it's worth mentioning that you've previously spent time in France. This isn't you know this wasn't just sort of like I'm going to find a program just anywhere. There was there was also an abiding love that you had for right. for French culture, right? So, when did you when did you spend time here, and what was that like?
1: Yeah, a lot of people. So the explaining why I wanted to get into whiskey usually is not so hard. I just have to say I'm from Kentucky and people understand. But a lot of questions come in. They like, "Okay, but why whiskey in France? And um, (laughs) and and that one, uh, the answer to that can be answered in a number of different ways. I mean, one, I have a a sort of long running family affinity to France. So I actually have a a fifth time's great grandfather who was a veteran of the Revolutionary War. Um, which uh, France's efforts to help us gain our independence, you know, endeared favor with all Americans, but you can imagine particularly for the veterans of that war. Um, And I also had my grandfather who landed on Omaha Beach um, just about a month after D-Day during World War II and actually spent the remainder of the war in Cherbourg. And so I had just sort of grown up in this um, household that was very... um, pro-France. I mean, very interesting in, in French culture and French literature. And so as soon as I had the chance, uh, I started studying French, which in Kentucky was in the sixth grade. And uh, when soon as I was able, I, I was able to study abroad. And I actually did numerous study abroads first in uh, Normandy. And I also did one in Avignon and one in Aix-en-Provence, which is where I really, really fell in love.
0: So, okay, so the family connection, though, which I which I find fascinating, um, also connects you to the, the creation of your whiskey brand. So Two Worlds Whiskey, after you've – so you, you, you came into this program, you interned at La Maison du Whiskey, and all the while you're sort of putting the pieces together for your brand, which would connect this world that you grew up in in Kentucky with also the French heritage that was, you know, sort of always uh, – a, a, a fragment of your family's personal narrative and person, you know, and, and, and identity. Um, what is the link with Lafayette and whiskey? Because um, I found it fascinating to, to sort of read through your, your family story and, and also where you come from and to understand why all these pieces come together. Sure. So,
1: I mean, Lafayette, there's no better a historical figure that better embodies that sort of French American alliance. But the the story of Lafayette that really moved me. You know, everyone knows the story of of him convincing France to come help us in the war. But before that, there was this very personal story of a very young man, um, 19 years old and orphaned, uh, who decided on his own and against the wishes of his king to go help the United States. So our very first edition is actually named after this first boat that Lafayette took to France, um, which was called La Victoire. And that was in 1777. And at that time he was actually going against the orders of the king. He was under threat of arrest, but at 19 years old with his own money, um, bought this boat, filled it with arms and men, and took off in the black of night, basically, to, to sail for the U.S. and try to help us. And I, I found that so extraordinary um, because that, so that was 1777, and less than a year later, it was when my uh, five-times-great-grandfather joined the war as well. So he joined the uh, Westmoreland Militia in Pennsylvania, which is where he lived, and um after the war he actually started uh distilling so my mom who is a, an amazing sort of genealogist uh, had found records of william downard and his brother uh between the two of them owned both uh, farms where they were raising grain between the two of them. I think at one point they had eight stills, uh, which, you know, a lot of farmers had stills back in the day, but it would have been their most prized possession, but they had eight, uh, which, which is unusual. And they also owned a tavern on the, the main street in, uh in their town in Pennsylvania. And so it, from that information, I think it's fair to say that they had some sort of whiskey trade going on. And then uh, in that region, Uh, Not long after the revolution ended, we had the Whiskey Rebellion. And again, um, even for people who know about the Whiskey Rebellion, the French tie might not necessarily come in, but the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, which for those who don't know, was after the war had been won, The our new country was in a, an extraordinary amount of debt. And one of the things that was done was that the excise tax on whiskey was raised to 60%. So you can imagine for people like my uh, ancestor that this was a, a huge hit um, to their livelihood. And a lot of these distillers also happened to be veterans of the war who were watching their former uh, you know, comrades in battle over the Atlantic who are waging their own revolution at home and said you know we didn't fight to be taxed to death basically and so there was a, a rebellion that was mounted in uh, the area of Pennsylvania that my grandfather lived in we don't have any definitive proof that he took part in it but uh, not long after it was squashed out he uh, in a great hurry moved him and his 10 children down the Ohio River to Kentucky uh, and one of the reasons that a lot of those distillers moved was that excise tax wasn't being implemented in Kentucky, uh, which I, uh, we have a, a okay. long proud tradition of, uh, <laughs> not, not letting the, the tax man take his cut. <laughs> so, uh, we, we do know that he, he bought a plot of land, uh, he had, was right next to water, he had all of the, The things that you needed to start distilling again, but because we don't have the tax records, uh, we can't confirm that he he continued to distill. But I think it's fair to say he probably did.
0: And so that's where the history of bourbon comes in as well. Um, So, again, for people who are not uh, well versed in the variations of whiskey? Because, you know, there's, I, I know the Japanese makes with whis- make whiskey, the Scottish make whiskey, and the Americans tend to make a very particular type of whiskey. So what is what makes it distinct?
1: So bourbon whiskey is what we're, we're known for. Um, and I, I think it's helpful just to remind listeners that whiskey, all whiskey is, it's a very generic term, it is just a spirit distilled from the base of grain. Um, so so you can use any different type of grain and the, the maturation methods are different, but the, the two things that people really point to that make bourbon uh, a very unique style is first um, what, the grains that are used to distill it. So it's required to be at least uh, 51% corn, but then there's always two other grains. There's always a little bit of malted barley, which you need for the fermentation process. And then there's the, what we call the secondary grain or the flavoring grain is usually historically either rye or wheat. So that's one part that makes it unique. Uh, The second part, which I think is actually the part that is of much greater influence than the the grains themselves, is actually the maturation method, which is quite unique to us. So when you make a bourbon, that distillate, that spirit, has to be put in a brand new charred oak barrel. Now, the, the reason that that's important is that barrels are kind of like tea bags. Every time you use them, they give off sort of less and less flavor. And you have to imagine that at least 60% of the flavor of whiskey actually comes from the wood. Um, And so the fact that you've got this charred oak, it's that uh, char in the vanilla and in the wood that gives bourbon its classic sort of vanilla and caramel flavors. Hmm. But the the first people um, to actually use that method of aging whiskey... Uh, we believe we're French immigrants. So there's a, a great bourbon historian uh, whose name is Michael Veach, who wrote a, f- a fantastic book called Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey and American Heritage. And he found in his research that, you know, early on, uh, people, d- distillers like my ancestor would have just been distilling and selling it directly as is, they wouldn't have been putting it in wood. So it wouldn't have been uh, whiskey as we think of it today. Um, but the the first people to actually have the idea to put it in barrels were these two brothers, um, the who are Jean and Louis Tarascon. And so they had actually moved from France during the terror in uh, France. And they had first started a couple of businesses in Pennsylvania. And then they also moved down to Kentucky. And there's a little island just across from my hometown of Louisville that they founded called Shipping Port. And there they were basically buying whiskey um, from local distillers uh, like my ancestor and then putting it in charred oak barrels as the French have been doing to age brandy since the 15th century. And so they were then selling that whiskey down river uh, to New Orleans, which you also have to remember at the time was the sort of commercial center of that region of the United States and was predominantly French. So people down in New Orleans were still looking for spirits from their home country, which uh, often was cognac. But cognac was extremely expensive because you would have had to import it. And so we believe the Tarascon's may have actually marketed their aged uh, spirit to to sellers down there as it's like brandy, but made out of corn.
0: How fascinating. And yet the French really don't know this history. They don't know their involvement in you know, and in what was, you know, has has come to be bourbon whiskey. So why is there this lack of awareness?
1: I mean, I think some stories like that just get kind of lost with time. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. even for a lot of bourbon aficionados in the US, they're not maybe as aware of that. Um, There are some sort of stories that get told over and over again. And it also comes with it comes down to how we think about whiskey, too. I mean, we people tend to think, More about the distillation, as I said, than the maturation. And so a lot of the the first distillers were Irish and Scotch. But not only, actually, the first recorded uh, distiller in Kentucky was of French heritage. It was a man named Marsham Brashears, which was the Americanized version of his original French name, which was Brasseur, uh, Mm. meaning brewer in Mm -hmm. French. But um, I think just uh, it just comes down to the waxing and waning of popularity of, uh, of different things and stories like these get lost. But fortunately, there, there are historians out there like uh, Michael Veach who are doing good work and uh, resurrecting these fascinating connections.
0: So in creating this brand, Two Worlds Whiskey, you're, you're, you're blending these two histories and connecting France and the United States. But who is your whiskey ultimately for? So this whiskey is for the French. Um, So why is that, and why, and why now?
1: Why now? So the French are actually enormous consumers of whiskey. Um, A couple years back, there was a big stat that France were number one in the world for consumption per capita of whiskey. it was probably malt whiskey, which would be more of a Scotch style, but all of that to say is that they drink an enormous amount of whiskey and at one point, and it, I'm not sure if it's still true, but at least a couple of years ago, uh, they drank more whiskey than wine, which is very shocking, uh, even to the French. However, <laughs> it is surprising. Um, it is. Um, it's impressive, even. but uh, the, you know the, the majority of the consumption is Scotch whiskey. And so I knew from studying abroad and and traveling here, anytime I would talk to people about bourbon, it sort of suffers from a lack of awareness or even a, a poor image. So, you know, for people who are whiskey connoisseurs, they usually only ever know one or two brands of whiskey, and they're usually very bottom shelf, throw it in a cocktail sort of bourbons. And so they try those at some point in their sort of whiskey discovery adventure. They're not terribly impressed. And they take from that one experience, the idea that all bourbon is like that, that it's all, you know, sort of one hit wonder, uh, a little sweet, not very complex, and they move on and, and never return. And so I always wondered why that was. And so when I, I moved to France, and I started working with La Maison de Whisky, I worked as a brand ambassador. So I, I got to travel all over the country, getting to meet uh, bartenders and, and wine store owners, and, and just whiskey lovers everywhere. And I over the course of these conversations really sort of figured out that, you know, if you don't already know good bourbon, you're never going to just come across it uh, in France. And the reason for that is most of the the really top shelf bourbons never even make it here. Um, the demand for bourbon is so high uh, especially in the U.S., but in other big markets in the world, that the the top shelf ones are what we say under allocation. Basically, what that means is that any particular market, uh, so we'll say France as a market, will only get a certain number of bottles a year. And usually the people who already know about it and know exactly where to look for it at exactly the right moment will buy them all out, sometimes in seconds. So you're never just going to stumble across it you know, in your local cove one day. Uh, And so if you, you never have had the chance to try one and you've never, uh, if you don't already know about it, you're not going to learn about it. And so I wanted to show that, you know, bourbon is not a one hit wonder, that there's a a vast diversity of flavor profiles that are possible. And I also learned in the course of this experience that the, the French expectations for whiskey in the French palate is very different than an American palate. And so I wanted to be able to create a bourbon, not only that shows them, what a high-end whiskey can be but to make one specifically for
0: them okay so but that's a really interesting point but before we get to how you sort of tailored this product to their palate out of curiosity do you know what other countries um are big importers of bourbon whiskey from america yeah i know
1: that uh, japan is a huge importer mm. uh australia germany um I believe even Spain and Italy might be higher than France. The U.K., uh, definitely the bourbon boom is taking off in the U.K. Um, so but obviously the, the domestic market um, in the U.S. is high. And the thing about bourbon is it takes, you know, a certain number of years to create. So it's not a, it's not a product that you can say, okay, demand went up. Let's just make more. Um, you know, the, the distilleries are making more, but we're not going to see that um, increased volume for years.
0: Right. And in Paris, I know that um, there was a, there's a, texas barbecue restaurant called the beast which unfortunately i've i've learned is closing or has closed no yeah uh another covid casualty casualty and he thomas um the owner had the largest selection of bourbon anywhere i want to say even in the country um Because, you know, it was clearly part of, you know, it goes hand in hand with this idea of obviously not Texas specifically, but, you know, the idea of barbecue and, and blending those flavors together. And I know that he had a huge clientele. Uh, from across Paris, who would come specifically for the bourbon, even more so than the the barbecue. Oh, yeah. um, so I think that's really fascinating that there's not a whole lot of choice, or there aren't that many options if you are someone who's, you know, a bourbon aficionado, and you happen to be in, in, in France. It's true. I am very
1: familiar with the Beast. And I, I have to just tell you briefly that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when I was in that decision point about trying to decide whether or not to to break up my life and move to France one of the things that tipped me over the line actually was your book and oh. specific- It's true. And it was specifically the the chapter about the beast. I mean, it was there were numerous sort of narratives in in that book, which is great. And everyone should go out and buy it um, about sort of young people who had started off on a career path that is traditionally, um, you know, impressive where people say, you know, it's a quote unquote good job who decided to leave and go do something entirely different. And the, the beast one really hit home for me because that one was about a French guy who stumbled upon and fell in love with Texas barbecue (laughs) and just threw himself headlong into like learning everything that there is to know about it and then bringing it back to France and adapting it to France. And I really believe that that actually that chapter was one of the things that gave me the grain of the idea of I can bring bourbon to France, but adapt it um, to a new a
0: new environment. Oh man, that so makes me you. so happy. But also, you know, he he didn't just, do, you know, there are there are many um Parisian restaurateurs who, you know, get inspired by things abroad and then they, you know, they they do like a copy and paste job and and that's not to say that they never work, but you know, certainly if you don't put all of the research and the heart and the and the learning behind it, um you know, it, it may not have the same longevity. And so Thomas was, you know, Thomas, who's been on this show in the first season, but he blew me away because he really just, it's like he had a, a revelation and he interestingly, um, in, you know, just to, to connect with you, um, was working for LVMH in spirits before, well, no. <laughs> right. That was his job. So, and you know, that's
1: it's one just, of those jobs that people think you'd be crazy to leave that job, but he
0: did. Well, and he did something cool with it he did. So I hope he, he finds a, you know, a new path, um, or can revive the beast. Um, so, okay. So now you've, you've created this brand. The visual identity is absolutely stunning. The packaging is stunning. Um, and the story is, you know, rock solid. And I say that in a way as someone who has worked in advertising and marketing before, and I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, um, there that this is some sort of like you know calculated story what makes it so great is that it's really your story and that really shines through so how then do you incorporate this and adapt it to the french palette what does that look like so the there's two
1: different sort of aspects of it i mean one that you mentioned uh is the packaging um so on a, on the external level, there's a lot of sort of aesthetic choices and um, even very practical things that had to be changed. You know, another reason that there's not a lot of bourbons in the French market is that we have two different industry standard size bottles. Very small, uh, you know, in the US, uh, spirits bottle is 75 centiliters and in France it is 70. Um, you know, it's one of these tiny sort of barriers to entry to the market that's not very sexy but is a a start to something different another one is that and if you're trying to sell a higher range whiskey you need to have um a box or a coffret because people are usually um, are often buying them as gifts. And so, you know, in the U.S., we don't really think too much about boxes. But when I was talking to a lot of cavies, they would say, you know, sometimes they might propose a nice bourbon to a client, but they would say, oh, but it's a gift and that one doesn't have a box. So very simple things like that. But the more important part, of course, being the taste of the whiskey itself. And so, you know, over my uh, I think when I worked for Le Maison and Whiskey, I calculated at one point that I did over 2,000 uh, tastings for people. And I love doing tastings for French people because they're so um, open and frank and transparent with what they're thinking as they're tasting things. Um, which I think has to come down to have growing up with this culture of tasting wine, but also just this French attitude of like, you know, they're not uh, they don't care about sparing your feelings you know? no. <laughs> in, in the US. If you say something you don't like, you're like, oh, that's very nice. And in France, they'll be like, nope, I don't like it at all. And I'll tell you exactly why I don't like this, that, and the other thing. Um, But when they love it, they'll also tell you. And so, you know, over the course of tasting a bunch of different styles of whiskey um, for a vast uh, and diverse group of French people, I sort of developed a, a sense of what it is that really impresses a, a whiskey drinker in France as opposed to a whiskey drinker in America. And a lot of it for people who are familiar with the differences between sort of um, palates and wine will find it familiar. So, uh, you know, in the U.S., if you're talking to a whiskey lover who who's just had a, a bourbon that he loves uh, or she loves, they might say something like, you know, it was bold, powerful, like knock you over, hit you in the stomach, you know, these very sort of like um, strong uh, descriptors. Whereas in France, I would find when people just tasted something that they were really blown away by, the words that they would use more would more often be delicate, elegant, refined, balanced, which you can see already right there is a very, uh, a very different sort of set of expectations. And so... Totally when I set out to, to make our first edition, La Victoire, I knew sort of exactly what I I wanted to put together from the nose to the palette, to the finish, that was going to be specifically pre- pleasing to that French palette. And so uh, I actually worked with two incredible women uh, in Kentucky to help make that happen It's Monica Wolfe and Ashley Barnes of the spirits group in Louisville. And, um, basically the, we all sat down around a kitchen table one day, we did a few tastings to sort of calibrate our palates together. I explained the profile of what I wanted to make. And then between the two of them, they said, okay, we're going to, we know what it is that we are, we want to create and we're going to go out and see uh, what, aged barrels are available. Uh, And then Ashley, who is a master blender, she formerly worked with um, some of the biggest heritage distilleries in Kentucky, actually came up with a custom blend specifically for us.
0: And what about the I know, we've talked about this, but the, the the barrels and the, I guess the bottling, I mean, what aspects of the process happen in France?
1: So the, for this first edition, um, most of the, the magic did still happen in the U.S. So the, the whiskey was all distilled, aged, and batched, uh, in, in, uh, the U.S. And the bottling and all of the packaging have actually happened, uh, on this side of the Atlantic in France. So, um, I haven't mentioned it just yet, but so this is sort of the first range of three that we have envisioned for the Two Worlds uh, brand, and so this one will be the most sort of American driven. And as the the we reach out into the different ranges, that that balance between the French uh, input and the American input is gonna is going to even out. So um, I can just sort of mention briefly: uh, the La Victoire is always going to be like this. They're going to be custom. Uh, blend specifically for the French palate created by our, our master blender, but o- only using American um, spirits. The second range, and each of them is named after the different uh, three boats that Lafayette took between France and the U.S. So the second one is called the Alliance, uh, which he took the USS Alliance after he was injured in the Battle of Brandywine to go back to France to try to convince the king to actually support us officially. Um, So the Alliance range will be still aged uh, in the United States, Um, so bourbons and ryes, imported into France, which I will then put through what's called a secondary maturation process or a finishing process, or in French you would say an affinage, uh, in former French wine and spirit barrels. So for example, um, one of the first projects I'd love to try would be to take an already aged bourbon. Uh, and actually import it into France and have it go through a secondary maturation process in an ex-red wine barrel. Um, I know that sounds completely bizarre, but uh, having already tasted some really incredible red wine-finished bourbons, it is uh, a very exciting combination. Or another good example would be a rye whiskey finished in a Calvados barrel. So you can see already the, the marriage between the sort of the American savoir-faire and the French uh, are starting to to come together. And then it's the third range um, that I think is really the most exciting uh, and is the most sort of balanced between the two. My idea uh, for this one will be called L'Hermienne Hermione, which is the most famous um, ship that Lafayette took. It's very well known in France. I don't know if Americans are as familiar with it, but in, in France, L'Hermienne is a, a very famous ship. Um, but that one, I will actually be bringing over um, American distillate. So that is to say, it's been distilled from grains, uh, in the U.S. with, you know, U.S. water, U.S. yeast. So you can call it the sort of U.S. terroir, but then importing it into France to do the the primary maturation in new charred French oak casks in the south of France. And so that way I'll be bringing in the French savoir Faire and barrel making, which is world renowned. I'll be bringing in the terroir of both the French oak, which imparts a completely different uh, character on the whiskey than an American oak. It's much more spicy, more robust, more tannic. Uh, and also the climate, um, because I would like to do this aging in the south of France in Provence, where you have a similar sort of um, climate that you have in Kentucky, where you have big temperature swings, um, both daily and seasonally, uh, that really actually is um, highly impactful for creating this particular style of whiskey.
0: So it's safe to say this is a very ambitious project. Um, and one with a, I mean, I would say a relatively long timeline, but you, you've launched already through a very successful crowdfunding campaign, the first version or the first iteration. So La Victoire. Um, and what is the next step? Sort of what, what has the reception been to that among those who have supported the campaign and what, what comes next?
1: So the the reception of La Victoire
0: Batch One has been
1: um, outstanding. I have to say, I I obviously knew um, I loved the product going into it, but it's a it's another thing when you get that sort of uh, when I get to watch the look on people's faces when they taste it for the first time. And the other sort of big news, which will um, be announced today, which will already be announced when this is is live, is that uh, I actually entered La Victoire Batch One in a blind tasting competition for ultra premium American whiskeys and. Uh, la victoire batch one came out with a gold so uh, oh my gosh, that, that is so
0: is exciting and very, validating
1: very very exciting um and especially because you know as you mentioned the packaging is beautiful but i want people to know that you know you put all that aside the whiskey itself is really really beautiful um So, so that's thrilling. So we're, we're actually going to be setting up our online shop, uh, this week as well. So people will actually be able to just go to our website, uh, twoworldswhiskey.com and buy directly from us there. If they live in France, it is just for France. Um, and then the, the next steps from there is working on all those, those other ranges. So, um, you know we're we're gonna need to find a spot uh, down in the south where we can start doing both the the maturation of the Alliance and the the Hermione ranges. That will involve uh, getting custom barrels made, importing more whiskies over here. Um, there's there's enough work to keep me busy for for several years coming. But um, in the immediate term, it's selling batch one and starting to work on the new ranges
0: and so you've you've already gone around to a bunch of i mean i know you've had meetings with different distributors and Caviste and um and maybe restaurants as well is that uh, perhaps a it's a, on a the route agenda for take? la
1: rentree yes okay. absolutely
0: so one last question and this is really i think always a a question among listeners when they think about people who are creating brands and businesses in in france um but obviously paris being the capital you know, gives you access to a certain number of, of resources. How have you found the process, the administrative process of of doing this? Do you find that you're in sort of the right place to create this brand or, or were the hurdles more um, numerous and painful uh, than you expected?
1: I mean, anyone who has started a business from scratch uh, can tell you that there are lots of, of hurdles to be faced. Um, but then when you sell you're talking about selling alcohol, there's more hurdles. And then when you're talking about uh, importing alcohol, it's even more hurdles. And then France uh, obviously has this reputation of being very, very difficult to start a business in. And I think um, going into it, having had experience with French bureaucracy before and being aware of that sort of difficult reputation, I was very braced for uh, you know everything to be more difficult than I thought it was. And I, in many cases, I was very pleasantly surprised. Um, you know, France in recent years has has taken a lot of measures to make entrepreneurship easier. Uh, and I have to say, the the process of actually starting the company on paper uh, was was a lot more swift than people uh, told me to expect. Uh, there were resources available to me. For example, there was um, free sort of coaching at the beginning, where I was able to to learn some of the basics of uh, of getting you know choosing what form of uh, business to put together and what the sort of processes are, and connecting me with different people uh, that I was quite impressed by. Um, but you know, that said, uh, of course, there's been a lot of a lot of barriers. If it was easy, um, everyone would be doing it. But it's a uh, for me such a a labor of love that it it got me through. But then, of course, you you throw in the added cocktail of COVID <laughs> at which the which is end.
0: when you launched the business.
1: Exactly. ultimately. So yeah, so we were set to have a launch party, uh, which was going to feature you uh, and a lot of other great women in the industry. Um, In a beautiful venue at the Cercle de l'Union Interallier, Uh, my two partners were going to fly in from Kentucky. I had that all set up. I even had uh, educational visits for for us set up to take uh, Monica and Ashley around to visit cognac distilleries and, um, you know, blenders in Bordeaux and cooperages and all this stuff. Uh and the bottling was set to happen that same week. So everything was uh in place to have everything be ready on, on March twentieth, which was when I started the the crowdfunding campaign. And of course COVID uh wiped all of those <laughs> plans out. Um so everything that was meant to be done in about a week took another two and a half months, uh I'll say, to happen. So, you know, my bottler had to shut down. Uh the the People who are producing our packaging had to shut down, uh, and we didn't actually get the final product bottled and in, in boxes until June. Um, so
0: you know, this is this is a, a, an exercise in in real patience. Yes, most definitely.
1: <laughs> but you know what? It's it's been that way. I can't complain because uh, you know, COVID has hit everyone. It's not a, a problem that is unique to us, and I feel lucky that despite all those challenges, we're still able to get our our are whiskey ready so you and didn't know that's you tell the me,
0: And didn't you tell me that um, consumption during you know whatever confinement looked like in various countries was actually up Not that that's necessarily a, it might be a concerning statistic for some people in terms of, you know. It's not that
1: consumption was up. Actually, it's that, um, you know, obviously people were drinking less in bars because the bars weren't open. But people were buying more from what we call the off-trade, so from cavies, from from, uh, wine and liquor stores. And not only that, uh, they were also buying more premium products. So, I mean, in general, the the trend lines um, for, for something like Two Worlds Whiskey are, are not bad. People, in, I mean, even before COVID, there's been a big trend of, of drinking less but better, uh, which is, you know, something that we, we certainly can support. But, yeah, during COVID, people were, were making themselves cocktails at home. They were still, I think, trying to explore some new flavors. And so people were... Um, you know, buying either online or from their, from their local stores. Obviously in the U S the, the liquor stores for the most part were open here in France. They were totally close. Um, but.
0: Yeah. But it hasn't stopped two worlds whiskey from entering the world. And, uh, and thankfully you know, you're going to have a long future with this product. So where can people support you? I mean, there's twoworldswhiskey.com. Those who may not be able to, you know, order within France, how can they show support for what you're doing?
1: So, um, on a very basic level, they can just sign up for updates on our website. If we ever do eventually, uh, spread out into different markets, that will be the first place to learn. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook also under two worlds whiskey. Um, but also if they have any friends in France or if they have plans to travel in France, keep us in mind, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful, uh, that Americans will be, um, Able to travel safely back into France, and I think that's a for people Americans who are coming to to travel here, it's a really unique souvenir. It's something you can only find here, uh, and it's something that is um, you know, it's n- it's not going to be like any whiskey you're going to find on the American market. So, um, you know, think, tell, spread the word to your friends <laughs> who are here, and remember us, and come come visit France.
0: Man, I love that, that, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. It is one of the most unique souvenirs you really won't be able to get anywhere else. So Ashley, congratulations on this big launch. Everyone follow Two Worlds Whiskey and you can capture all of the, you know, the energy around Ashley's, um, Ashley's project online, uh, wherever you are signed up. Ashley, thanks so much for joining.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That's the show for today. You can find all previous episodes of the New Paris Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you stream your shows. Until next time, à bientôt.